Well, we are now fully in the month of Advent, that month in the traditional church calendar when Christians remember and even sort of relive the drama and anticipation, the waiting for the coming of the Christ, Jesus. 2,000 years removed from that event now, most of us are mostly used to the fact that he came and that he was born. Most of us are fairly familiar or even comfortable with what we might call the surprises in the story surrounding Jesus' birth. That it was a virgin birth. The angels sang. Shepherds showed up. The birth in Bethlehem, which would, it would seem serendipitous that the Old Testament promised a birth in Bethlehem for the Messiah, and Mary and Joseph don't live there, but somehow get there. And of course, it's not serendipitous, it's prophetic, and, and it was God's design. We're also fairly familiar with many of the things that Jesus taught. We're comfortable with them if we've heard them over and over. We've recently been studying the Beatitudes on Sunday mornings together, those sayings of blessedness that Jesus gives in Matthew 5. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And one of the goals I've had for us as we've studied this is for us to observe how shocking and scandalous it probably was for those who would have been there in the crowd to hear these words for the very first time. And yet if we're reading Matthew's account from the beginning, we've got four chapters that precede it. And it's all surprising material. By now, maybe we wouldn't be so surprised reading Matthew for the first time from beginning on through. The Beatitudes sort of strike a familiar chord. Surprise. Unexpected. This is a different kind of prophet. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of Messiah than people expected would come. In fact, it's not just Matthew. All of the gospel accounts really begin with a dual emphasis. On the one hand, they show that Jesus is the promised one. He is fulfilling scripture about the promised one to come. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. On the other hand, there's this theme that his coming and the events surrounding it are just littered with surprises with what seem to be upside-down ways. I'll get to Matthew 5 in just a minute, but let's first remind ourselves of such surprising things in Matthew, things that we're quite used to, most of us, by now. Like back in Matthew 1, after a genealogy, which of course tells us that Jesus is the promised one, he's got the credentials for it, we learn that he'll be born out of scandal when his mother is pregnant and yet a so-called virgin. You know, that's what people would have said around Mary in those days, so-called virgin. We know what happened. We know how this works, lady. Yeah, you're pregnant. You're not married. You say you're a virgin. And hence their scandal. Even just Joseph, her fiancé, at first is, is ready to kindly dismiss her and cancel the marriage. Until an angel shows up and gives him an inside scoop. In chapter 2, these wise men or magi come from the east to, to pay homage. No, to, to give worship to this newborn king of the Jews as they call him. It's a nice story. We've all seen Christmas programs with kids playing wise men, and it's cute, it's interesting, but it's weird. These are Gentile kings, not Jewish kings. Maybe they're not even Gentile kings. It might be more appropriate to say that they're Gentile sorcerers. And they are the ones who recognize the long-awaited king who's been supernaturally born, sort of in secret, but sort of written in the sky. They're the only ones to discern it. Of course, the magi seeking for and worshiping the Jewish king 
is set in bold contrast in Matthew with the actual king of the Jews, the person who bore that title in that day, a guy named Herod, who is not excited at all about the news of a newborn king of the Jews or promised one. You might remember he has all the male children who are two years old and younger murdered in an attempt to stop the rival king rather than acknowledge and be excited about and, and, and seek out and, and feel as though he might be saved by the, the promised king. And of course, that means that the true king and his parents, they're on the run. They're hiding out in Egypt for some untold amount of time. You fast forward 30 years, as Matthew does in his account, and then we're introduced to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He's a hairy, beastly prophet of a man who likely has pieces of locust and bits of honey in his beard as he proclaims the king is coming. The kingdom of God is here. He's the one who is the red carpet before the king comes. He's the trumpeter, the heralder before the king steps on the scene and takes his place. Who to thunk? By the way, in the first three chapters of Matthew, six different times we see something like this. This happened so as to fulfill what the prophet said in the Old Testament, and then it quotes something from the Old Testament. Six Old Testament quotations with fulfillment language. So there's this emphasis in these three chapters with six Old Testament quotes that despite all the surprises going on around, this is what was promised all along. This was the plan. And yet for all of the quotations and fulfillment that's coming to pass, don't miss the surprises. Don't miss how shocking this would have been as it happened or as Matthew's first readers read it. It's then that we can better appreciate the surprising and seemingly upside down nature of these Beatitudes. Though you might be familiar with the Beatitudes, though you might think that they're nice sayings or good advice or inspiring, though you might have a book on your shelf that talks about how to use the Beatitudes to be a successful businessman, a book I came across this week and didn't click purchase, they were shocking in their day and seemingly backwards to the common ideas of Jesus' time, they should still be shocking today. So let's read them. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, today we'll focus on three of these Beatitudes, the ones found in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. We've already considered four of the Beatitudes thus far in our study. We've learned from verse 3, for instance, that spiritual poverty or acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy doesn't look like it should be blessed by God. It looks like the spiritually... Well, rich should be called rich and blessed. 
It doesn't look like mourning for our sin and for our spiritual poverty is needed or the blessed thing to do. It doesn't seem like the meek will inherit the earth. It doesn't say the powerful, the mighty, the swindlers, those who really know how to get it done. That's who's going to inherit the earth, the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Notice Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are filled with righteousness. Or blessed are those who have a predetermined sufficient amount of righteousness. They've passed the test, it's good enough, I'll let them in. They have to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that they don't have. We saw last week that this kind of righteousness must be a gift from God because we can't fill ourselves up with it. We can't get righteousness, though we hunger and thirst for it. It's him who fills and him who satisfies. But we also said last week that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not just a gift, but something that Christians want to grow in. We want to grow in living it out. We want to manifest that righteousness in our own actions and thoughts and affections. So how will the humble righteousness that the first four Beatitudes talk about be manifested, lived out? How does one live out humble righteousness? One answer to that is by continuing in the Beatitudes that we've already seen. Remember, we don't graduate from any of the Beatitudes. So you live out humble righteousness by continuing to understand spiritual poverty and mourning over sin and meekness in your approach before a holy God. But also in the way you relate to others and to God. That's what our three Beatitudes are about today. The fifth, sixth, and seventh beatitude show us humble righteousness lived out. The first goes like this. We could say the merciful get mercy. That's in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That sounds nice to our ears, though maybe some of the self-confident and belligerent types even among us might not love mercy, showing mercy. Karate Kid famously said, show no mercy, right? Well, in the Roman world too, and even more so, in the Roman ancient world, mercy was not at all esteemed. They esteemed power and control and intimidation and coercion. Just think of the relentlessly conquering Roman army. Not at all observing boundaries and being respectful and leaving people to their own, but conquering and conquering and subjugating. Think of the taxes that they put upon the people that they subjugated. It was relentless. It was merciless. Think of crucifixion not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by the Romans, not only as a means of punishment, but also as a means to, to strike fear in those who might choose to revolt or even just disobey. The Jews in Jesus's day hated these symbols of Roman power. And yet, not many, if any, Jews in Jesus' day spoke of mercy for such Romans. Not many Jews in Jesus' day spoke of a kind of mercy that they needed for themselves, for that matter. The gospel, the good news proclamation for many Jews in Jesus' day, it would have been good news about Messiah coming, yes, but to vindicate the righteous themselves and to vanquish all other unrighteousness around them. But Jesus comes in the seemingly backwards way, welcoming and blessing the spiritually impoverished, not the spiritually wealthy. He ate with and spoke to and ministered to sinners, 
famous sinners, tax collectors even, who worked for the Roman government. He explained in Matthew 9, because as he ate with these sinners and tax collectors, the religious leaders said, what are you doing? You can't do that. You're not upright if you even eat with them. And Jesus explained to them, you don't understand mercy. He said in Matthew 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not that some are really well, and that's why they don't need a physician. Some think that they're well, and so they won't go to a physician. We're all sick. Some know it. He came not to call righteous people to repentance, but sinners to repentance. It was scandalous. He requires acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy and mourning for sin and coming in meekness and lowliness. And so those who think that they're in because they're slightly better than some others, they're not in at all. They're not in the kingdom. But when you do, hunger and thirst for righteousness, he not only will fill it, and fill it to the full. But when he fills you with his righteousness, it will begin to manifest itself outwardly. It will be lived out. So here's the point of our beatitude so far. Having received mercy, we desire to show mercy to others. Not because they deserve it, but because we know it. We've experienced it. We want it spreading in this world. We have been on the other end ourselves. That's the point of our beatitude. It's not saying that if I show enough mercy to enough people in my life that in the end I will earn God's mercy. No. If this were the only verse in the Bible, perhaps we could conclude that. But not only do we have a whole Bible to deal with, but just the, the Beatitudes that came before won't let us go there and think that. None of those blessings mentioned before are earned blessings, quite the opposite. It's God's mercy lived out. That's assumed, shown among others because we've experienced it ourselves. Mercy is the growing instinct of those who know their great need for mercy and have experienced the release of their guilt because of God's mercy. This is beautifully illustrated by Jesus in a parable in Matthew 18. Would you turn there in your Bibles? Turn to Matthew 18 with me. This is the parable of the unforgiving, forgiven guy. That's what I put in my notes. The unforgiving, forgiven guy. He's the guy who's given, forgiven a great debt and goes and wrings the neck of someone who owes him a couple of bucks. Let's read the longer version that Jesus gives. Matthew 18, start in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. You see what's going on here? The servant, forgiven of a great debt, didn't really get mercy. He didn't understand or appreciate the forgiveness that he'd been shown. He wasn't humble. He wasn't righteous. And he showed his pride and unrighteousness by wringing the neck of someone who owed him a couple bucks. That's why I worded this point in our outline as I did. The merciful get mercy. I mean that two ways. Yes, they receive mercy from the Lord, and yet they get mercy. The reason they get mercy from the Lord is because they get the mercy of the Lord. They, they, they get it. That's how I would say it. I'm from Michigan, so they get it. That's how you say it there. It's a different word than get. Certain things you get and some things you get. So I wonder, has God's mercy to you sunk in so that it is seeping out? You know, you eat enough garlic, it seeps out. It seeps out through the pores, you know it. Mercy should be like that. Showing mercy means having compassion, granting forgiveness, being gentle with and kind to others, especially those in need. It means taking care of needs that we can take care of even at great expense and cost and sacrifice and inconvenience for ourselves. This was the parable of the great Samaritan in Luke 10. The good Samaritan, rather, it's called. He, he saw the need of the man lying in the ditch, half dead and bloodied and robbed, and he did something about it. He had compassion on him, and he got him to a place where they could take care of him, and he paid the bill. This is mercy. Mercy is also less than just really big deeds of saving people who are half dead. Mercy is a decision to not return hurt for hurt or wrong for wrong when we've been wronged. Mercy is not holding a grudge, not judging motives, not letting bitterness remain. Now, none of us show as much mercy as we should or could. None of us, not even close. Hopefully, we will grow in showing mercy the older and more mature that we get. But we grow not by becoming used to God's mercy to us, but by further realizing the mercy he has shown to us. So here's the beautiful thing. It's a cycle of sorts. When we're not merciful, when we're not kind, not gentle, not forgiving, when we're instead rude, indifferent, vindictive, or bitter, we once again see our spiritual poverty. We feel our spiritual bankruptcy. There's blessing there as we mourn that sin, as we meekly talk to God about that sin, as we thank him for a righteousness that he fills up, not of our own doing, but of Christ's doing. And as we ask him in prayer to help us to grow in a hunger and a thirst for a righteousness that's actually lived out and demonstrated in everyday life. The Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1500s, divides into three sections. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Each of the questions and answers it gives fall into those three headings. It's sort of how we become Christians. We understand guilt, our guilt. We understand grace, God's grace. And then we desire to live in light of that grace by showing him gratitude. And yet it's also sort of the cycle of the Christian life. It just sort of keeps happening. We want to walk in full gratitude. Sort of. We don't sometimes. We don't much of the time. But we as Christians have something to go back to when we sin. We have an advocate with the Father. We once again see our need for that advocate. We, we see guilt. We see grace. 
And we want to once again walk in gratitude. Gratitude. Not just a, a bit of thankfulness, not just a general sentiment of appreciation, but a transformed life. The merciful get mercy. Not perfectly so, but genuinely so, legitimately so, or else what Jesus said here isn't true. Is it true of you? This beatitude requires us to ask difficult questions. Is it true of me? Do I show mercy? Will I get God's mercy in the end? Is my general tendency to look down on others, to protect what's mine, to assume motives? Or am I quick to forgive? Am I slow to be offended? Am I going through life keeping tallies with everyone around me? You buy me lunch? Oh, great. I got to buy you lunch next time. Is that how you think? Someone wrongs you? Do you interact with this invisible tab you have going on in your mind, this ledger? They've wronged you? Check. Demerit. Minus 10 on your score. I don't know how big the number will get before I've got to tell you, you really got a problem. And I've got it spelled out for you with these examples. But I got record of it. I'm holding it there. I wonder if you're assessing your faith by some standard that doesn't include mercy. Are you? In Matthew 23, Jesus addressed the Pharisees there and said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, because you will tithe down to a tenth percent of your dill and your, your mustard seed. But you neglect the weightier things of the law, like mercy and faith. If you think you're failing, don't say to yourself, Oh, shoot, yeah, I forgot. Mercy is one of those really important things. It's earmarked for distinguishing Christians from non-Christians. I forgot. I better give more attention to mercy. I got to do better or else God won't give me mercy in the end. If you think like that, you don't get his mercy. You got to get his mercy and then it will live out in your life. And I pray increasingly so. The merciful get mercy. Secondly, the pure in heart will see God. They will see God. That's what verse 8 tells us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now the heart in scripture isn't that physical organ that pumps blood through the body. Nor is the heart just the emotional part of our innermost being sometimes we distinguish between head and heart sometimes it can be useful to think of thoughts or truths versus emotions or feelings sometimes I'm sure I speak like that it can be useful it can be misleading though because the heart in scripture is never just the emotional self it's the whole inner self it's the will desires affections feelings thoughts Etc. Proverbs 23 tells us this that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's who he is. Life is lived from the heart on out. And thus begins the rub with this beatitude. Because though God says, Blessed are the pure in heart, we know from other parts of the Bible that our hearts are not pure by nature. We know from Matthew 15 that what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The prophet Jeremiah said hundreds of years before, the heart is deceitful. Above all things, it's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? 
And that's bad enough, but the very next verse in Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart. He knows our hearts. He knows our hearts far better than we do. And the added problem is that we can't fix our hearts. We can't change our hearts. I can't get in there to do spiritual open heart surgery. Proverbs says, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Or Jeremiah, the prophet, said, can a leopard change his spots? No. Then how can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, start to do good? This is the reason behind something we've talked about a bit in the last couple of weeks. We've said more than once that the greatest problem in this world is not fundamentally educational or political. It's not relational or social. It's not circumstantial or financial. It's not economical. It's not even ecological. That doesn't mean that people and their leaders shouldn't bother to improve these things. Indeed, they should. But what it means is that there are severe limitations to what institutions and initiatives can do. It's severely naive to think that there's some mixture of problems and there's a silver bullet that can fix it. It's naive to think that the problem is all externals and circumstances. It's a problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. James 4 tells us that this is where wars come from. Why do wars and fighting come about? James says they come from within. When your passions war against each other, you want and you can't have, and so you fight. And when nations want and they can't have, they go to war. Well, what hope is there then? You might be thinking, I thought the Beatitudes were supposed to be hopeful and, and happy. Yeah, but it must start with spiritual bankruptcy and work out from there. Where's the hope? Start with spiritual bankruptcy. Mourn your sin. Meekly come to God, hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that you can't fill up in yourself. And believe that God can actually purify your heart. Turn back with me to Psalm 24, if you would. Turn to Psalm 24 in your Bibles, where there we see that God demands purity of those who approach him and sent a pure king to lead the way to him. The first half of Psalm 24 sounds, at least to me, scary, like bad news. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, who can enter God's presence? Who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. Those are the conditions for entering God's presence. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I, I fail those all the time. Clean hands, pure heart, no lying. But then verse 7 turns a corner. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Do you recognize these words from Handel's Messiah? Yeah, because they're about the Messiah. He's the coming king of glory. Get ready. He's the one who will enter in. He's the one with clean hands, a pure heart, and never lied. And he can lead on in all those who will believe in him and follow in his path. So the fierce criteria of the first half of Psalm 24 turns to great hope in a king of glory who is pure and does enter into God's most holy places and even with sacrifice for our sins. This is what Titus had in mind in chapter 2 of his short letter. He spoke of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, at the cross that is, 
for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So is that what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 5? Blessed are the pure of heart. I would say yes, but more than that. Bear with me. There's some layers to it. Like last week when we talked about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I said that hunger and thirst after righteousness is met by God as a gift of righteousness, yes. And it is something Christians desire to grow in and work out and live out in everyday life. We even added a third component to it. That hungering and thirsting for righteousness will one day be filled to the full in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more sin, not even any temptation or half-hearted motives. So if we take those three components, we can think of three P words that might help us. You might have heard this before. Christians talk about having been, past tense, freed from the penalty of sin. But in the present tense, we are being freed from the power of sin. That's the Christian life. And then one day in the future, who knows when, we will be freed, will be freed from even the presence of sin. That's how we should think of purity of heart in Matthew 5. Purity of heart starts for those who know that their hearts are not pure by nature. They know themselves to be spiritually bankrupt. But they are those who also know that Jesus was pure for them. He was a ransom for sins. He alone can purify their souls. They are also those who Jesus is growing into real purity of life. They're living it out. And they're those who one day will be utterly pure and purified before their God, made white without blemish forever and ever. So I ask you, where are you in that? Do you see your need for heart purity and that as your greatest need? Do you think you need Jesus just to tinker with your life? What would a blessed life look like for you this morning? What would need to be added or changed? A relationship fixed? More money, you say? I don't know, whatever comes to mind, you know that. Get rid of it. Don't think of that. A blessed life is one that's pure in heart before the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Do you see yourself in need of heart purity? And have you come to Jesus who alone can purify your soul? Do you think you can do it? Do you think the problem is something else besides your heart? if you've come to know that it's not, then come to know that only Jesus can cleanse you. And Christian, are you growing in a real, lived-out heart purity before the Lord? This word pure can mean not just clean or cleansed, but, but also undivided. Are you growing in a singular focus on the Lord, in a singular passion? Are all other passions sort of uniting in him? And on him, he should. And are you longing for that day when he will make you clean? He will fill you with righteousness to the full. In that day, get this, you will see God. See God. That, now that's unthinkable if you know parts of the Bible that, that I know, like 1 Timothy 6, that God dwells in unapproachable light and no man can see him or does see him. Or Isaiah 6, that angels cover their faces in front of the glory of God. Or Exodus 33, where Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God said, no man can see my glory and live. But in my kindness, here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the corner of a rock and I'll put my hand over your face, and then I'll pass by, and I'll let you get a peek of the, the comet tail of the back end of my glory. And that made Moses' face glow. 
The people of Israel were afraid of Moses' glowing face, which was just a mere reflection or imprint of, of the tail end of the backside of the shielded glory of God. And yet we're told elsewhere in Scripture that one day we will actually see him. We're told in 1 John 3, when he appears, Jesus appears, we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies themselves with this hope. So think of what it means to see him in glory. Think of the many facets. It means being with him as opposed to being banished from him. Seeing him means beholding him, not with curiosity, like it's a cool 3D movie that just keeps going, but awe-stricken, joy-filled, dazzled in beholding him. But he's no spectacle. He's our God. He's our Father. He's a person. And so we are communing with him when we see him. It's eye-to-eye fellowship. We worship him. We'll be changed by him. It's a longing that's fulfilled, a longing that you don't think you have as your greatest longing, but I think one day we all will realize what a longing for God's presence we had all along when we actually have it in the full and we are filled up with his glory to the full. And that won't change. How about that? We will see him and we'll keep seeing him. Nothing will come between that. We won't get sent off to our rooms. Or even worse, put in solitary confinement. That has present day power. That's not just going to be good when it happens. So we can get through it now. No, we can more than get through this life in light of the glory that's still to come. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus appears at his coming. Do you long for that? Is it changing your every day? Can can you do hard things tomorrow? Because Jesus is coming back and we're we're getting his glory for Pete's sake. We're going to see him. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And in the meantime, don't just wait. Don't just imagine what it'll be like, but go to his word. That's where we see him now. Behold him in his glory, in his inscripturated word. You want to see Jesus? Don't go to a stained glass. Don't go to your aunt's oil painting in the hallway. Go to these words. These are life-giving, living words of a portrait of God's glory in the flesh. And as we behold him in these pages, we behold him and are changed by him. We become like him, so says 2 Corinthians 3. So let's go looking for him often, together, alone, as families, routinely, regularly. Let's gather around his word. It's where we see the hope of a pure heart. It's how, in part, we purify our hearts and our lives. And it's where we go to be reminded of the purity and the presence that will come when Jesus returns. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, thirdly, the peacemakers are sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Just like in verse 7 with uh, blessed are the merciful, so it is with verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking is not a condition for God's blessing, but an indication of God's blessing. Peacemaking is not a condition for entering the kingdom. It's the description of those who are in the kingdom. It's what we do in the kingdom. Just like we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. So we are to be peacemakers because we have been made at peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. 
And that's why we're to be called sons of God. We could think of adoption, a marvelous New Testament metaphor for the Christian life and salvation. We're adopted. That means we're in the family. We're accepted. There's honor. There's inheritance. There's love and relationship. It's a beautiful New Testament picture of salvation. But this says sons of God. I was tempted to put adopted in our outline. I thought, no, no, no. This is doing something different here. Sons of God. Think vocationally. Because in ancient times, sons did what their dads did. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't get to, you know, 20 and say, what am I going to do with my life? I don't know. I don't know. What are you talking about? He, just, he was a carpenter. That's what he was doing at 10 and 12 and all the way through. We Christians are to be peacemakers because we know peace from God. And our Father is a peacemaker who's making peacemakers. We've not only been reconciled to God, He's given us a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us everyone in here who's a Christian is also an ambassador for Jesus, representing him to the world and pleading with the world to be at peace with him. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is Luke 1 at his birth. He's going to come and he's going to bring bring peace. This is Luke 2, as the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom he's pleased. He brings peace through his death. Romans 5 says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We can be declared righteous, not by earning righteousness. We can be at peace with God, not by trying to be peaceable to God. We can be at peace with God because Jesus died, and that's enough. If we believe that to be true, We're declared righteous, justified in the sight of God. We're at peace with God. And he gives now a peace that passes all understanding. His kingdom is described as a a kingdom of, of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peacemakers are made, are in the business of peacemaking by by peace proclaiming but these peacemakers then are also to be at peace with each other they're to pursue peace with one another Ephesians tells us that Jesus died in order that those who are famously enemies would be reconciled in one like Jews and Gentiles Isaiah 11 talks about the coming of the son of David in terms of a uh, a wolf and a lamb lying down together a leopard and a goat going out together, a lion and a cow being friends, a boy playing with a cobra, mailmen in dogs hugging. (laughs) These people don't get along. They don't go together. The last one I made up, it's not there in Isaiah 11, but you get the point. And it's now and it's not yet. I mean, you might say, boys playing with cobras. No, no. They don't. You can't. We won't let them. Yeah, I know, but it's, it's forecasting what's to come. Unthinkable peace. And we already see foreshadows of it here. Where people in this room who aren't like each other, people in this room who at times don't like each other, have committed to be together, to love one another, to worship together. They're peacemakers, and they got to pursue peace. you got to pursue it. Yes, there are limits to it. There are other things to say. We know peacemaking is not always just peace-loving. Sometimes peacemaking causes sparks. We know that in Matthew 18, there are steps there of increased, serious, and more involved confrontation for a brother or sister who who persists in sin and unrepentance sometimes it has to get worse before it can get better 
Sometimes you can't control the peacemaking on both ends of the, of the parties. As much as it depends on you, we're told in Romans 12, be at peace with all people. But let's pursue peace. Qualifications aside, let us be a people who pursue peace. Jesus died for it. Forgive. Don't hold grudges. Don't judge motives. Don't gossip. Don't listen to gossip. When you're sinned against, when you've sinned against, you make it right. It's what we do. Even when we sing together, Colossians tells us that the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts as we sing with one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs. This is the calling to which we've been called. Ephesians 4, I close with this. This is the calling to which you've been called, believer. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body and there's one Spirit, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's no respecter of persons he saves. Let's love, let's make peace. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be Put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. It's the blessed life. Blessed are those who have the kingdom of heaven, who are comforted, who inherit the earth, who are satisfied, who receive mercy, who will see God. They will be called sons of God. What privilege and what responsibility too, huh? Let's pray. Father, we need your help to live in the light of the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. Help us to walk in your ways. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the model that you are of these glorious beatitudes. When in doubt, we can always look to what you did to see what mercy is or what peacemaking looks like. Help us, we pray, to look more like you as your servants. Above all, help us, Lord, just to be thankful, rejoicing at the great assurance that you are ours, that we have salvation, that we are adopted, that we are born of your spirit and washed in your blood. We thank you for such great grace is this. We pray this in your strong and saving name, Lord Jesus. Amen.